0: This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Everybody to the politics, politics, politics program for September 7th, 2022 year old pal Justin Robert Young joining you back in Austin, ready to rock and roll Labor Day pew, behind us. That means we got nine adrenaline fueled power packed weeks until the midterms. Oh, buckle up. Don't get scared now. Because it is time to finally decide these general elections. The fate of the Senate hanging in the balance. The fate of the House hanging in the balance. The Dobbs ruling has totally reshaped where we are headed. Is this the moment when you absolutely want to bet on the Republicans? Because After Election Day, we're going to look back and say, boy, we should have probably bet the fundamentals after all. All of that is obviously up for debate. Oh, by the way, speaking of debates, that is at odds in two of the big Senate races that we have been following, both in Pennsylvania and in Georgia. And today it led to the hometown paper of John Fetterman, the Democrat leading in this race, to write an editorial saying, if Fetterman can't debate, then maybe it is time to seriously worry about his health. How will that affect everything and the battle between Warnock and Walker? Also, I'm going to do a big old deep dive into the speech that Joe Biden gave last Thursday. I really, I mean, I'm kind of blown away by it. I kind of think it says a lot about where the White House believes this race is going. And I have got a lot to talk about the choice of decor that they went with. But stay along for that. also, we're gonna give you because that that's a lot of politics, right? That, that's a lot of nitty, gritty, dirty uh, under the fingernails politics. And trust me, we're gonna have nothing but that going forward. So every once in a while, I like to give you guys a little bit of a combo breaker. And so I got a little bit of a wonky interview for you. yeah, Morris Kleiner is a man who just wrote a book about occupational licensing and regulatory capture. I know you're listening to me saying, Oh, is this an Andrew Heaton podcast? You know, this is like what he normally does. He normally does an hour and a half with these guys and they talk about the big ideas. I swear to God, if you are not naturally inclined to be excited by regulatory capture and occupational licensing, I guarantee you that you're going to enjoy this podcast. You're going to enjoy this interview because Morris is great and it's not the dense subject that you might think. Indeed, you can probably boil it down to, why does my florist need a license? All that. But first. Has the tide turned on John Fetterman and specifically his reluctance to set a debate with his Republican opponent, Dr. Mehmet Oz, in the battle for that Pennsylvania Senate seat? The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette published an article saying, or editorial rather, saying that beneath campaign nastiness, legitimate concerns about Fetterman's health. We read now from said editorial. Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor and U.S. Senate candidate John Fetterman has not fully recovered from the serious stroke he suffered in May. His campaign has acknowledged that his, he has obvious struggles with, quote, auditory processing, unquote, and speech. But the persistence of those struggles has contrasted with the campaign's rosier predictions of a return to the rigors of campaigning, including debating his opponent, Mehmet Oz. If Fetterman is not well enough to debate his opponent, that raises serious concerns about his ability to serve as the United States Senator. Now, there's some criticism of Oz in here that we're going to get to in a second, but let me get back to their commentary on Fetterman. Fetterman's campaign asserts confidently that he will make a full recovery and that he's doing the hard work, including speech therapy, to accelerate that recovery. That's hopeful and laudable. But stroke recovery is notoriously unpredictable, and the campaign's early predictions proved optimistic. The more recent predictions of, quote, several months to a, quote, complete recovery may prove optimistic, too. Why does this matter? Well, as much as newspaper editorials do matter, which is to say not a ton. And... The Pittsburgh Post Gazette is not just any newspaper to John Fetterman. It is a widely read newspaper and a name in the Steel City. What it represents to me is the possible breaking of a dam. Because while the Post Gazette does spend about half of this editorial saying that Dr. Raz is being a real cheese weasel about all this up to and including saying satirically that the Oz campaign will foot the bill for any kind of medical personnel that would need to be on hand at any debate. That it still doesn't excuse the fact that he has not returned to a full campaign schedule, that when he does campaign, his speeches are short and there are obvious hitches in what used to be a very, very clear pattern of speech. And look, The plain-spoken Fetterman always represented an interesting debate matchup with somebody who made his living feeling comfortable in front of cameras in Dr. Oz. Now, there's no doubt it would be a liability, especially if Oz wanted to press Fetterman on the issue while they were live on stage. And previous to this moment, Fetterman had an out. Polls indicated that Pennsylvania had, you know, already made their decision. Through the dog days of summer, as Oz reportedly vacationed, Fetterman saw encouraging polls up 9, 11, and 14 points. If that was the baseline, then Mehmet might be DOA when voters really started paying attention. But recent polls have things a lot closer, some of them within the margin of error. And if we're assuming that Pennsylvania polls that lean Democratic in 2020 are still leaning Democratic in 2022, that that means this race is a toss-up and momentum isn't on the side of Fetterman. One last thing. When I was talking about what steps the Dr. Oz campaign could take to save themselves— One of the things that I pointed out is that I thought the Fetterman strategy of Dr. Oz as a carpetbagger was a fine strategy to do when your opponent isn't trying, but if your opponent is actively trying to work through it, then it's kind of hollow. It's a funny joke. It's something that you can say, but seriously, folks, after. And if things are going well, it will always be an applause line or a laugh line. But right now, it feels like that's the majority of where Fetterman is directing his efforts, aside from being a plain-spoken guy. If this continues to move on and metastasize into a larger issue, then health will be a death knell issue for the Fetterman campaign. They have to do everything they can to either change the conversation or have Fetterman get healthier. And since it doesn't appear that the second one is going to be very likely, they're going to need a way to refocus where this is. And right now, unfortunately for them, if the litmus test is, will you debate, then that might mean agreeing to a debate and then doing everything you can to turn the page. This is a slightly more dramatic version of what's happening in Georgia, where Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker have both agreed to debate each other, but just not on the same date or in the same city. Here is Walker commenting on it.
1: Because I always have been. I'm not going to hide. I'm going to hide like Senator Warnock. And what I would say to Senator Warnock is where you at, scared a cat, debate me October the 14th, Savannah, Georgia, in front of our audience, and let's let the people see. And I think you guys will love that too. See a debate because it's for the people.
0: Now, there's a dispute as to who agreed to what first and what they knew about it when they said they'd do it. But Warnock is currently slated to appear at three debates. Walker has agreed to one either, as of this recording, ready to meet each other at the debates that they agreed to. Now, Warnock, the Democrat, is still leading in the Real Clear Politics average in this race, but did not lead a single poll that came out in August. Walker notched slim leads in both of those. And in an ironic twist, what could uh, push the hand picked Trump nominee Walker past the finish line is the stronger polling of mortal Trump enemy, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, who, as of now, does not seem particularly vulnerable to Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams. Still, a debate between Warnock, an eloquent pastor, and Walker, who ranges somewhere between folksy and an interview with a UFC fighter who just woke up from being knocked out would probably benefit the Democrat. So if Warnock would like to debate three times and Walker would like to debate once, it would seem to me that Warnock would be benefited by having this debate on whatever kind of ground that Walker wants. The likelihood of Walker blowing up his campaign by saying something insane is way higher than Warnock doing the same, at least in my opinion. Still, this stuff in both of these cases is very much par for the course. Debates spar over who and when things are going to happen a lot. And it has only happened more and more over the last few years as controlling the narrative and the rewarding of a Republican base for not playing into something that might be looked at in the past as Democratic institutions taking advantage of Republican candidates by giving them unfair questions has led to these issues becoming a little stickier. All that being said, I assume both of these races will stage debates. How many of them? Well, that remains a question. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to support something that is very rare in this day and age, independent, ad free, Except for this content about political races that actually reinvest the money that comes in so I can be your eyes and ears as these campaigns unfold. Well, there's only one place that you need to go. Take politics seriously dot com. Hey, by the way, a Palm Beach County judge awarded uh, Donald Trump's legal team the victory of having a special master appointed to the case of uh, the FBI raiding his Mar-a-Lago estate. I, I, I haven't. I'm not going to talk a lot about it. In fact, I'm only really going to mention it here because I don't. I don't know what the hell that means, man. I don't. I, I'm not going to pretend. Here's here's why here's the respect that I have for you guys and the respect that I have to everybody that goes to take politics dot com is I'm not just going to fashion myself to be an expert in this. I'll, I'll tell you what I can what I am good at, and that's reading the tea leaves of what various other media members think. And I get the sense that Democrats and people who lean Democrat were upset about it. So I guess that's a really good thing. For the Trump administration, or at least the Trump know, organization, but I don't know, and they don't know either. Just, everyone's been making things up. Anyway, I don't. Well, I mean i i make I make up the content for you. That's me. I'm just in the in in, in the podcast kitchen stirring a big old bowl of spaghetti. And, and as you slurp down those podcast analysis noodles, you go, delicious. And I go, hooray. And then we uh, twist our mustache together. And, all right. Anyway, go to takepoliticsseriously.com. $3 pledge gets you two bonus episodes each and every week. $10 pledge gets you that plus your name right at the end of the show. I love everybody who does it. And uh, thank you so much for supporting in any way that you can. I took notes on the Biden speech. Watch the Biden speech. Took notes on the Biden speech. Here are my notes. We open with some soaring but common rhetoric about the miracle of America. The speech happened in Philadelphia, outside of Freedom Hall. So we get, you know, America, what a beautiful experiment that happened on the eyelash of Jesus or whatever. At 3:50 into the speech, we get the first mention of Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. Aside from the fact that this sounds like a, you know, some sort of Dickensian gang. We, we get some more specifics from Biden. Not every Republican is MAGA. But all Republicans are scared of and driven by the MAGA Republicans. Now, the Biden administration reacting to some of the negative blowback on this speech kept pointing to that line that he said, hashtag not all Republicans. So if you're going to show up and say that he's claiming that the 70 plus million people who voted for Donald Trump are all equally evil, ah, 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 read that line. But here's the problem with that line is that. If you're insinuating that every Republican, whether or not they agree with Donald Trump and MAGA, is under the thrall of MAGA and voting for Republicans is emboldening MAGA, then essentially you're just saying the same thing with extra steps. Biden goes on to say that MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not respect the rule of law. They do not respect the will of the people. This is probably a good time to mention that Freedom Hall did not look like a particularly sunny and cheery place. No, it looked like the throne room of the Death Star where Emperor Palpatine would be goading Luke Skywalker into fighting either him or his father. And just like Palpatine had two palace guards behind him, Biden was flanked in the camera shot at all times by two Marines with an ominous red glow upon them. Here's something else that I found interesting. Biden bops between domestic terrorist-level threats, i.e. fanning the flames of political violence, with policy differences, a woman's right to choose. This is, again, where... Uh, I'm not an expert. I don't write political speeches for a living. But boy, does this seem like two elements that you got to be very careful about mixing. Because when you mix the idea that our opponents are domestic terrorists, when you leave that door open. Then you are asking for somebody to walk through it and judge it the least charitably you can. Here's a clip. To build
1: a future or obsess about the past, to be a nation of hope and unity and optimism, or a nation of fear, division,
0: and of darkness. I can say at this point in the speech, it didn't seem like he was doing a lot to inspire hope. (laughs) It seemed... From the visual presentation to what he was saying, that the majority of what he was doing was instilling a sense of fear in the electorate that the following evildoers cannot continue to run amok. Biden then went on to make a passionate appeal for the end of political violence in America. Which aside from January 6th, I was not initially aware was an ongoing problem, at least any more than normally happens in our kooky little country. He goes on to say that the violence that he's talking about are continuing threats of violence. So saying that somebody is going to do X, Y, and Z, to which point I would say, you know, in general, all that stuff is disgusting to me. It is awful. It is not something that any one party can say they don't have people making unhinged calls to Congress. That, that is just a thing that happens. By the way, let's talk about January 6 for a second. According to a June 6th poll, half of GOP respondents believed that January 6th was led by left-leaning activists, which is to say that I don't think that there is much clear evidence that a majority of even Trump supporters believe that the riot at the Capitol was justified or good. Oddly, it seems quietly to be a bit of a bipartisan agreement. Biden goes on to say that, quote, we cannot believe that there are only two outcomes in an election. Either we won or we were cheated. End quote. I mean, you know, I wonder if he's going to say that line next to Stacey Abrams if he heads down to George to campaign for her. That's all I would ask. That's all I would ask. Yet it is 16 minutes in to a 24 minute speech that Biden actually talks about anything that has happened since he was inaugurated. January 6th was was the cornerstone there. It's only at 16 minutes into this speech that he begins to talk about his accomplishments. 19 minutes in, he says he's optimistic about America, which is something that kind of comes at a surprise when he's talked about everything else. He says empathy that fuels democracy sees us not as enemies, but as fellow Americans. Also, we responded twice to being heckled. Those are my notes. Let me also say this. I thought Biden was energetic. I I think if Biden gave more speeches with that level of, of energy and focus, that there would be less of the does this man have dementia stuff. That for all of the criticism that he got for that speech, there was not a ton of it that pointed to him feeling Lost or unfocused or whatever. Now, it seems clear to me that the White House believes a few things. Number one, for the Democrats to win, the midterms need to be about Trump. Personally, I don't agree. I think that for Democrats to win, the midterms need to be about abortion. He mentioned precious little about that and certainly did not give the kind of emotional rhetoric to that issue, which we have actually seen move the needle as he did for Donald Trump Two, the White House believes that for Biden to make Trump the center of this midterm, he needs to become Trump singularly focused on what people are talking about on television and social media. For Trump, that was Hillary, Bernie and whomever else wanted beef for Biden. It is Trump. And number three, the White House does not have faith in the legislative achievements of his first two years on the job to run on them. Otherwise, he would have led his speech with those instead of them being a drumroll at the end. Now, imagine if the structure went a little something like this. My fellow Americans. We fought hard through the darkest hours of 2020 together. Unemployment at staggering levels, children falling behind as they were out of school, and the deep divisions of a presidential race. And thanks to over 80 million of you, we prevailed, hoping to usher in a much-needed daybreak. But folks, you know what they say about things becoming darkest before the dawn. On January 6th, 2021, we saw a repulsive sight play out on live television. The storming of our capital by forces determined to rip the rightly won election away from the majority of our country. And still, a few days later, when I took the oath of office, I swore to be the president of all Americans. Yada, 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 COVID Relief Act, yada, 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 bipartisan infrastructure, bipartisan gun control, bipartisan semiconductor money that will not only bring jobs to America, but also safeguard the tools we need for the next century from foreign influence, yada, yada, yada. Now, we still have our challenges. While we've broken COVID's hold on our lives, we still need to deal with the havoc it wrought on us. We need to invest in our children to get them back up to speed. And to every parent watching right now, my heart is with you. And of course, just like that dark moment in January of uh, last year, we still have political unrest in our country. We still have those that would seek to destabilize our democracy. It's not everybody. I don't even want to use the name of the opposition party because I don't think it's all of them. But I'll tell you who they are. Cowards. Because America thrives on the battlefield of ideas. America thrives on the turnout of its citizens to vote. America thrives because after the votes are counted, we get back to what truly matters. Our family, our faith, and our country. Imagine if that was the structure. Oh, and by the way, do it in front of an ice cream shop or something. Ground somebody as earthy as Joe Biden in front of something that looks like Main Street instead of looking like a a, a dark, sinister palace where the goons are about to shoot anybody who wrong thinks. But, you know, that's just my opinion. Let's lighten things up. Indeed, we'll have a license to lighten. Luckily, we don't need one of those. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of jobs in America and around the world that do require professional licensing. How does that happen? Why does it happen? And what does it do not only for people who want to work in those industries, but the people who interact with those professionals? To answer that, and many, many, many other questions. We have the author of a brand new book, Grease or Grit, International Case Studies of Occupational Licensing and Its Effect on Efficiency and Quality. He joins us now. His name is Morris Kleiner. Welcome to the show, Morris.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: So your book is is all about uh, regulatory capture. Can you please explain to the listeners what exactly that is and some examples of how they would see it in their daily life.
1: Sure. Uh, Glad to. Uh, Generally, and in terms of regulatory capture with respect to occupational licensing, is that an occupation, be it dentists or hygienists or teachers, uh, set requirements to get into an occupation And that uh, results in requirements perhaps being higher than they need to be to do the job. As a result, fewer people get in, and the people who are lucky enough to get in uh, get higher wages and uh, get to work more and have better working conditions. So it's great for the people who are on the boat, but it's a lot tougher for people who are trying to get on it. So when we talk about situations like that, is that... By and large, governmental
0: restrictions, or is it often you know the the uh, you know trade groups that are saying you need to be this tall to ride?
1: Well, it's both. Uh, that is, you have uh, in the context of what's often called public choice theory, individual groups who are able to get members to join their organization and uh, get the government. To license an occupation, and I think the in terms of uh, licensing 101, uh, this is a a, uh, a labor market outcome that that has grown from about five percent of the workforce to uh, about a quarter of the workforce, and it gets the members of the association to get government to uh, restrict entry, uh, limit entry under the guise of uh, increasing quality to consumers. So that's how you,
0: you, you normally have this happen, right? Is, is, uh, do these situations often just sort of naturally creep up higher and higher that the standards for which you need to get a license, uh, will, will kind of always be going 1% more difficult or do they happen more often because there's a opposite example, like some kind of horrifying thing that makes the news. And so this is why we need to make stricter laws on who does what.
1: Well, it's complicated and it's some of both. That is, there's public interest. That is some horrifying event, as you suggest, uh, results in uh, the legislature licensing a particular occupation. For example, mortgage brokers during the uh, crisis of 2008, 2009. mm mm-hmm. Uh, became licensed. Uh, But generally, it's been uh, occupations uh, themselves imposing requirements, that is, lobbying the legislature. It's sort of the perfect storm. You get members who are doing a similar job. Uh, They get their members together. They tax their members. They go to the legislature. They go to the governor and say, by taxing our members, and providing political support uh, to the legislature and telling the governor that uh, this will result in more revenue relative to taxes, uh, that occupation uh, can be licensed. And by licensing, that means you need government approval in order to work for pay in that occupation.
0: I think I know the answer here, but but just so it's said, I don't imagine that the the outcome of this kind of creep results in cheaper goods or services to the end consumer.
1: That's correct. Uh, Your (laughs) intuition is quite right. Uh, That is uh, generally uh, what happens is there's a restriction of supply. There are less people working in the occupation because it becomes more difficult to work in that occupation, to enter that occupation. And those costs are born up front. So you uh, if, if you're a finance person, you would know that uh, if you pay for something now, you need uh, the returns plus interest to, to compensate for costs right now. So it's much more difficult to enter that occupation. You need a lot more requirements uh if you don't have the funds or if you are not uh financial uh, if you're not financially able or or uh if you if there's a huge opportunity cost to entering that occupation uh there's just going to be fewer people in that occupation and with fewer people in the occupation if demand is growing prices go up <laughs>
0: Your book, Grease or Grit, takes a look at a lot of these examples through an international lens, or at least is talking about various different international case studies. Is there, well, here, I'll just ask you, what is the difference between how we handle this in America and outside of America? Are there any notable differences?
1: Well, one of the the big differences is uh, we have a, a very diverse uh, uh, republic so that in occupational licensing in the U.S. is generally, that is 75% or so, at the state level. So each state sets its own requirements for entering and, and geographic mobility, that is, the ability of people from other states to enter that state, uh, so that you have 50 different requirements in order to be an interior designer. Uh, in Europe, Uh, there's generally national requirements to enter an occupation, uh, with some exceptions, one of them being Canada. But in general, uh, it is uh, national requirements uh, in order to be a a podiatrist. So then in America,
0: if, if for whatever reason you do not meet the regulatory standards in one state, you can go to another and get licensed doing effectively the same job.
1: That, that's correct. And uh, one of the interesting uh, public policy changes has occurred uh, in Arizona, uh, where there was legislation that was passed a, co- a few years ago, which allowed people who are licensed in any other state, if they were a resident of uh, Arizona, to move to that state. And once they were a resident and they were licensed in another state, Arizona would accept Uh, their, their requirements to, to work right away. Uh, That was unusual. Most states, you have to meet those require the requirements in that state. The Arizona, Governor Ducey, uh, who is the, the leader of that movement. And, and since that time, there have been seven other states that have really uh, haven't gone quite as far as Arizona, but they've moved in that direction to allow people to move to that state and immediately become licensed if they're a resident of the state. So the Arizona example, uh, is
0: that for all licenses or or just specific industries?
1: Uh, they they had a blanket uh, requirement or re- reducing of a requirement that if you move to that state, if you're licensed in another state, they would accept that license, much like a driver's license. If you're licensed uh in Minnesota my sure. state you can go to Arizona and uh drive in Arizona So that would even include stuff like like the bar or 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 legal uh, uh
0: requirements to like to practice as a lawyer you could just move to Arizona and that's a thing
1: Well there may there there you did have to pass their uh you did have to pay fees and so on Arizona fees and register and so on so there were some costs but uh those were with some exceptions, uh, that you could move to that state and immediately practice. Uh, so, in in healthcare, if you were a, a respiratory therapist, you could move to to Arizona and immediately start to practice as a respiratory therapist. That's fascinating. When did that happen? About three years ago, just before the
0: pandemic. I can't imagine that that was particularly popular with some of the trade groups that
1: operate in Arizona. <laughs> That, that's very true. But Arizona is, is fortunate. They're a growing state. That is, uh, their employment is growing uh, industry. So relative to many other states, uh, they, they thought that this would be a net positive. That mm. is, if you were, uh, this would uh, allow more services, more service workers, where most of licensing takes place. Uh, to uh, have an ample supply of healthcare professionals, uh, uh, construction professionals, electricians, plumbers, uh, and uh, other financial services, uh, insurance agents, uh, uh, and, and many other uh, financial services that, that are licensed. So this was a blanket, uh, a blanket acceptance of licenses from other states.
0: I would also imagine that that makes sense for Arizona because it it is a state like my home state of Florida, where oftentimes professionals who have already gone through this process want to move from often colder areas into sunnier areas like Arizona and Florida. So they can entice them all the more by saying, hey, look, you don't really have to reset up your entire existence. You can just roll in, fill out a few forms and you're good to go.
1: That's right. Uh, And uh that that certainly has not taken place. Uh, e- although it's certainly a warm weather state in California, California has maintained very rigid uh, licensing requirements uh, to enter that state. And uh, states that that are declining, for example, Illinois and New York, have certainly not moved in that direction. I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's where I wanted to go next. I, I would I would
0: wonder if. You know, the, the, I think it's the, the Henry Kissinger quote that, that you know, the, the knives are the sharpest when the pie is the smallest, that that, that might play an effect in states like if Arizona is growing, so therefore it can be more lenient than maybe some of these states with at least slowing populations, if not declining populations, uh, would, would be the opposite. But then again, I would also wonder, do you have any examples of internationally where you do have declining populations in certain areas that that
1: this process has gotten more rigorous or more protectionist? Well, the European Union is sort of an interesting example. Within the used to be twenty eight and after uh, the u k uh, moved out, there are now twenty seven members of the European Union, and they allow, at least legally, uh, there, there are obviously cultural and language issues that that are that are serve as big barriers to mobility, but they allow uh, all professions to move across the European Union with no additional licensing restrictions. Now, uh, going back, to the, there are a few bar examples. You mentioned lawyers earlier. There are some examples where you do need to uh, take a test on the local uh, requirements to. To become a lawyer, but for most occupations, for example, plumbers, electricians, uh, and healthcare professions, you can move across the twenty-seven nations of the European Union with no barriers. Hmm.
0: So would that be? Is is the European Union's population? Declining? I, I I guess I have I haven't kept my eye on on international population trends. Well, in a it's minute. certainly
1: not growing. It's yeah. it's a stable population, and and uh, certainly some nations are growing. Certainly, fertility rates are very low in Europe, uh, and the only way they're growing is uh, through migration. But uh, for the most part, they're a very stable uh, population. Certainly, not growth the way Arizona, Florida, uh, are growing uh, in or Texas in the U.S.
0: Yeah, I would also just guess that you know, for the European Union, there has to be a benefit to membership, right? I, I know, at least, like my, my my British friends, when Brexit happened, that was the the front of mind thing to complain about was, oh, now all of a sudden, I I need to go through paperwork to, if I want to work in France or Germany or something like that. It, 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 that that was that was kind of the the reason to stay in for which. You should be patient with anything else that comes out of Brussels,
1: right? And 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 certain, but also there were uh, uh, Britain was the uh, beneficiary of lots of licensed occupations. Uh, If you wanted a plumber in London, you you better hope that there would be lots of Polish plumbers uh, in London who had come uh, from Warsaw. Mm-hmm. Uh, to London, uh, and that was sort of the dominant. They had really uh, become a dominant force in that licensed occupation.
0: Polish, uh, the the Polish plumbers had Polish kind of do- plumbers do- dominated the market to
1: uh, London. Yes, yes.
0: Oh wow! And was that because they had an
1: easier licensing system, or well, it was very easy. That's right, because they were part of the European Union, and uh, that that's an issue that Brexit may have. Uh, Put uh, more sand uh, in the ability to move from uh, Warsaw to London,
0: but then again, there's also no reason why London or that that the UK can't say, "Well, now we offer the same thing that Arizona does. If you're licensed in 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 Poland, then congratulations, you you can you can stay here."
1: Yeah, I think that's a possibility, but certainly uh, the uh, the local plumbers uh, may not be as open to accepting. Polish uh, plumbers now that they have the power to lobby uh, the the British Parliament to keep out uh, Polish plumbers, so that uh, that that it becomes much more akin to what's happening in U.S. states. This might be an unfair question
0: because I'm asking you to subdivide some of your research here. But when when you're looking at the totality of occupational licensing, how much of it is beyond the line of having a four-year college degree if not more and how much uh, occupational licensing happens for careers that would happen with a high school education or lesser
1: well well the real dichotomy is services versus manufacturing so what's happened is services have just skyrocketed over the last 50 years and that's where licensing takes place so in manufacturing you had a similar institution, that is unions, uh, would set the terms of getting into the union. Uh, what uh, What happens when you're working uh, at a particular establishment? Licensing now sets the web of rules in terms of how to work. Uh, so that's been very different uh, in, uh, in the case of licensing. And, and that's one reason, as I mentioned earlier, licensing has exploded from 5% of the of the pop of the workforce in the 1950s to one out of 4. So if you add all the people covered by the federal minimum wage plus all the people who are members of unions, you get about half the number of people who are in a licensed occupation. Now there is some overlap, but this is the big institution now in the labor market and what happens in terms of restricting entry, moving across state lines, is uh, the real barrier to both entering an occupation and moving across state lines. Or, and this has become a, a really important issue, uh, the issue of ex-offenders. In many cases, people who are ex-offenders cannot get a license. Uh, so that if you're if you've been convicted of a felony, misdemeanor. Uh, there's uh, there are generally good moral character clauses or clauses dealing with individuals who are ex-offenders, and you can't enter an occupation. Which may, although the I, I would guess we I, I'm currently doing work on this area, so I don't want to presuppose my <laughs> findings uh, is that this would probably lead to recidivism of individuals who may be trained as a barber or trained as a plumber, and when they get out if they find that they can't work in those occupations.
0: So what I was going to ask you next, and then you gave two examples, but if you could give a few more on uh, examples of, of, uh, a, a manufacturing licensing or, or some of those service licensing, uh, that would be, you know, a, a more at play for, for some of the, the blue collar industries.
1: Sure. Uh, and in the case of, uh, aircraft manufacturing, uh, you need, uh, Engineers who are who are who are aeronautical engineers who license airplanes. You sure, you certainly want that? Uh, those uh, their engineering uh, largely is the case of where licensing takes place. So in manufacturing, there are a lot fewer uh, occupations that are licensed because the firm through the hiring process will determine whether someone can meet certain requirements. And there's a less of a lesser impact of the state uh, in services. Uh, and this is the area where employment has been skyrocketing over the last 50 years. There's been less of that. So uh, services and healthcare, and that's 80% of all health care workers are licensed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been an area of very dramatic uh, growth. Uh, and that's been taking place. Uh, really at a constant rate since the 1950s, and that's an area of of significant growth. So it's all the way from the doctor, the dentist, to the dental hygienist and the physician's assistant and the nurse practitioners. Uh, The latter group have recently become licensed, dentist doctors uh, and uh, uh, many other uh, occupations, or uh, dentist doctors. Have largely been licensed going back uh, to the turn of the previous century. Politically,
0: w- w- where are the fault lines here? Because uh, I would, I would immediately assume that there might be from a a, a more libertarian perspective uh, of folks who want to make you know uh, uh, this an easier relationship between somebody who wants to provide a good or a service to the customer, but then again. Whenever you're talking about personal safety or or something that would impact the end user, all government tends to want to be involved more, especially in situations where you've got a a very emotional example. So so politically, where where are the fault lines here?
1: Well, I think I think you you raise them, and and it is complicated in the sense that what people think of as public interest, uh, so this these are areas where there might be the spread of a disease if, a, if an incompetent doctor doesn't pick up on a particular virus or bacteria uh, that could spread. And that certainly is a public interest issue. And then you have what I mentioned earlier, what was called the public choice perspective. And that is where you have the occupations lobbying and trying to get tougher regulations Uh, in order to keep people out and making sure their members, if you're a professional association, much like a union, you want to make sure that your members are well taken care of. And that means having high barriers to entry, both within the occupation or people coming from other states or people coming from other countries. Uh, So these are all issues. And that's that's where the fault line is, is the, the line between public interest and public choice. Do you have an example of an industry that found itself uh, overly
0: guarded in its occupational licensing and, and had to sort of deregulate uh, across the board?
1: Well, there are, there are some uh, examples of occupations that have become deregulated. Uh, some of them were just because there were so few few, few members of that occupation. Watchmakers in a particular state, uh, there were there were a lot of watchmakers were the,
0: licensed.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, uh, locksmiths, uh, upholsters. Uh, these are all occupations that that at some point have been licensed. Uh, that uh, that there is a movement to deregulate uh, some of these occupations. There was a in your state of Florida, there was a big push to deregulate over 50 occupations, including ballroom dancers. Now, for someone like me with two left feet, uh, perhaps (laughs) you want to keep me off the ballroom floor. Uh, But this is an occupation that has been licensed uh, and florists in Louisiana uh, were uh, or continue to be licensed. So there are many of these occupations where uh, uh, the public might question uh, the public interest part and might suggest that the public choice part, that is, members of the occupation want to make sure that there's less competition and keep people out, might be the driving force.
0: How much of a revenue stream is licensing for governments big and small?
1: well, it's fairly large. Just think of all the teachers who are licensed. Just think of all the nurses who are licensed. They're paying $150 to $400 per year uh, to maintain their license. Plus, they have to have continuing education. Uh, The industry that I'm part of, uh, the education industry, really promotes it. We get a lot of money for offering continuing education classes to licensed individuals. So there's a lot of uh, full-time equivalents or revenue streams that come to law schools, that come to architecture schools, uh, come to interior design schools, offering courses in order to make sure that uh, licensed individuals meet their continuing education requirements.
0: Well, it's glad. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that there's another revenue stream for academia. It seemed like everybody was really hurting. Uh, 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 well, I'll tell you, this has been a, a fascinating a conversation. If you guys want to go buy this book, it is Grease or grit international case studies of occupational licensing and its effects on efficiency and quality. It is out next week, but you can buy it pre-order right now on Amazon. And as we always say, whenever we got authors on uh, uh, sure, you can buy it everywhere, but help out the authors pre-order it. On Amazon, it helps the most that you could possibly do in terms of getting attention for stuff. One last question, and and I'll get you out of here, Morris. In your research for this book, what was
1: the most surprising thing that you found? Uh, Just very little effect of, uh, of the quality aspects of licensing. I expect that at least in some of these occupations across these many countries, that we'd find some positive aspects, and we found basically zero or in a few cases negative effects. And when you look at all the costs that licensing imposes on workers, uh, that 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 was that we expected some benefits to come to consumers, and it it we really weren't able to find much.
0: So, like the quality or the the rates of you know, a, a accident or or somebody complaining or something like that. No, nothing really right, right. changed. I'll we'll give
1: you an example, yeah. a chapter that I wrote uh, on, on Uber drivers. Uh, we expected uh, st- that cities that regulated Uber drivers to a greater extent would have uh, both perhaps better consumer satisfaction and uh, hard stops or hard starts, which Uber can measure. Uh, and we didn't find any. Uh, so that additional regulation wasn't able to to provide either better customer satisfaction or uh, higher quality safety. It's a fascinating subject, and and especially in just the example that you
0: that you gave, uh, unregulated tends to become a dirty word uh, uh, whenever there is uh, something that you are are upset about about an industry in general or an experience that you had, but uh, certainly fascinating perspective here. One more time for everybody, it is Grease or Grit International Case Studies of Occupational Licensing and Its Effects on Efficiency and Quality. Our guest has been Morris Kleiner, the author. Thank you very much
1: for joining us, Morris. Thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, politics, politics is written and recorded by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you would like to buy Morris's book, you can go to px3guest.com. Letter P, letter X, number three, guest. Dot com. You want to email the show? It is the young American at gmail.com. Hit us up on our Twitter, px3 tweets. You can find me live on Twitch three days a week, px3live.com. Sign up for my Substack where I am writing semi weekly, px3newsletter.com. Share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy, px3podcast.com. If you would like to, in a, a, a surge of inspiration because you've liked this episode so much, just throw me whatever pocket change you have. You can do so. Paypal.me slash payjury, P-A-Y-J-U-R-Y. Our Venmo is justin-young-20. And our cash app is px3cash. You can send me anything that you'd like in the mail to P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas 78715. I asked you guys for hats. Because I said I had already paid my student loans. I didn't need to get $10,000 from the government. But what I would like is a hat. And boy, you guys have sent me a ton of hats. I think I'm up to five hats that have come in. I got an American flag hat, a Steelers hat, a minor league baseball hat. It's great. It's amazing. Thank you so much. And keep sending them because I love this bit. It's P.O. Box. 153184 Austin, Texas 78715. Again, P.O. Box 153184 Austin, Texas 78715. Of course, if you would like to get bonus content on this show, you can always do so at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week, covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read right at the end of the show. Like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Matt, MC Radio, Unsafe DB Levels, Katie, Amanda, Yo Bimbo Shop. DB Vorbongo, Kneemeister, Catherine, Todd, persons familiar with the matter, and vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Edison, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, select, start, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100-mile runner, Idris Arzlandian, Blue Front and the Lenina, DL, Steven, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Diana, turn two, Miranda Janelle, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome. Brad, Richard, D. Laser, just another pilot. Middle aged Mike, who loves Frank, got abducted. Utah, Jimmy, Montana, the gen. A, L, D, L, D, L, D. Really? Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua. If you would like to join their ranks, very simple. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Only nine weeks left of shows. If you want to get your name on the 2022 midterm election on Friday's episode of the program, we will see the glorious return of our friend Jeff Maurer. He wrote a great article on his Substack, questioning what exactly is a progressive. It's good stuff. And he's always a good time. Till then, your old pal Justin Robert Young saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss... O three. three...